Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. As we're in Mark chapter 8, um, we are obviously we're in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus' fame is total. His public ministry is massive. There's been multitudes in public healings. Jesus has shown dominion over demons, over sickness and death, over the weather itself. Uh, he is training his disciples to exercise that authority over the enemy in all ways, and he's modeling it for them. He sent them out on mission trips. He has demonstrated through the, the feeding of the 5,000 um, what it looks like for God to provide when you're out doing the ministry and you're trying to serve people. So Jesus clearly delineates between the work of God and the traditions of human beings. He even, in the last chapter, responded to the Pharisees and scribes about their issues about washing hands, and his response to that was to put his finger in people's ears and then spit on them and, and do it again. Like, so there's an idea that God's blessing Jesus' ministry despite the fact that he's abandoning the laws of the Mishnah and the Talmud. He's added on laws that the Jews had added. And God's still blessing the ministry. Then we get to Mark chapter 8, and he's going to do another feeding. And it's going to sound a lot like the last feeding. Verse 1, in those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they'll faint on the way, for some of them have come from far. And then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And he said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took seven loaves and gave thanks. He broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before them, and they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish. Having blessed them, he said to set, that, set them also before them. So they ate and they were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. So this is really similar to chapter 6, right? It's like we've almost, it feels like you've almost read this before. So I think one way to tackle this and understand what the writer is trying to do with this is we look at what's the same and what's different. How has this changed? So in between this feeding and the last feeding, the disciples have learned some things and they've grown and they, they've learned more how to follow Jesus and how to be like Jesus. So asking the question, why is Mark writing the second story? It feels like he's already covered mass feedings, right? That's happened. He doesn't cover every single removal of a demon. He doesn't, he just says there were lots of removals and he doesn't cover every single healing. He gives a couple examples and he says there were lots of healings. So some critique that there's a second account adding in and they critique the scripture saying, well, this is a mistake or it's an accident or it was added in by, by some sort of fault. Um, I'm going to suggest that as we go through this passage that it's not an accident at all, that this is a significant passage in the scriptures showing the training of the disciples and what they've learned. And there's huge growth here. God desires to get people the word, the bread, and he wants the church to be part of doing that. So as he says to us in the same way, 
there's lots of people out there that need the word of God, there's some things we need to pick up on. So here's something that's different. In verse 1, in back in chapter 6, the disciples were off on break when the crowd gathered. This time they're not on break. They're actually helping Jesus this time. They're there with him. And so in, when he calls them to him, they're actually at hand and present when it happens. So they've been part of the work doing this. And the same, Jesus has compassion in both situations. Jesus loves the people, in both, both with the naive new believers and with the veteran believers. The question isn't if God wants to help feed the thousands. It's how he's going to do it and how the disciples are part of it. But God hasn't changed between the two stories. Same thing in verse 2. It says there's a multitude that are there. That's the same. The multitude was 5,000 before. It's 4,000 this time. The question isn't then how many people that are there. It's that there's large groups. Here's a different thing. In chapter 6, verse 33, it says that they were the locals. They, were, they could locally go to a city and get food. So they were nearby. But this time they're out in the wilderness. And in verse 3, it says they came from afar. So the first time he's talking to kind of just Jews, this time he's talking to Jews, but also people that have come from far away. He's talking to the, the world, so to speak. So the first time Jesus is kind of there, starts it on his own. The second time the disciples are working and they're dealing with a, a greater variety of people, even if a smaller number. Here's another different thing. It says that they'd been there for three days in, 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 when we look at the look carefully at verse 3. These people had been here three days. In, in chapter 6, verse 35, it was only one day. So there, in some senses, that's two days of the disciples just faithfully helping Jesus and serving Jesus without going to him. And the first time it took him, that took him one day for them to be in panic mode. Actually, it really took them at supper time. Like, it's getting to be supper time. These people are hungry. They need food. But this time around, they don't go to Jesus with that concern. They've learned how to take their anxiety over situations and reduce it and bring it back. They're kind of waiting on the Lord is where we get that phrase. And it takes them three days. And at the end of three days, it's not the disciples that go to Jesus. It's the opposite way around. God goes to them. Okay, I have compassion on these people. I'm going to do something. But they don't initiate the second time at the feeding. They wait upon the Lord and they see Jesus' passion and willingness to learn from it. So they're learning. They're, they're not handling this the same way. Here's another different element. Um, three days is complete in the, in the Hebrew sense. They're tired and they're hungry, but what they're hungry for here isn't food. They've actually fasted for three days, or they've eaten the supplies they had when they got there. So they're actually hungry for the Word of God to the point where they're exhausted and they're going to faint. So their spiritual self is getting fed, but their physical self is getting weak. So this is a full-on three-day Bible retreat that Jesus has just put on. Like when we do like a retreat or a conference, we go and we listen to the Word for two, three days at a time. And that's exactly what's happened here. God wants to have compassion on these people because of their faithfulness, not because of a passing interest. They've endured with Him. And maybe that's why there's 4,000 instead of 5,000. They've actually stuck with Jesus for a period of time. Verse 10 has them travel to the west side of things. And it says they're crossing when they go to the west, which might imply that they're on the eastern wilderness shores right now. Because he says we're out in the wilderness. Where are they going to get food? There's no towns nearby. So the far less populated east side of the lake might be where this one's happening, which would also lend to the fact that there's also Gentiles in the audience. 
So this is a lot more serious than last time, but the disciples have a lot more peace about it, even though the location's different. So this isn't a quick trip. There's no towns nearby to get to. There's actually a threat of fainting, or you could read that as they'll pass out and die and get heat stroke. So there's actually danger this time, where the first time they were just hungry, this time they're actually in crisis. Jesus calls them. This shows huge growth. They're just serving and trusting in the Lord, and they're not worried about where the food's going to come from. They don't presume, here's another piece, three days, they don't presume that Jesus is going to feed the 4,000. I think that's really interesting. The disciples don't just come up to him and say, hey, why don't you make more food again? And I think as Christians, sometimes we presume that God will do things the same way he did in the last revival. But we don't presume on that. We endure and we stay in the word as long as it takes for God to move and do something. Here's another thing that's the same. They have the exact same resource problem. The difference is this time they have the experience of the first time. The first time they didn't know what or how this could happen. But as they're doing this for three days, just blessing people, walking around, taking care of folks and being part of that ministry, for three days they have the memory of what Jesus did. And that memory assures them that all things will be well and that it'll be okay. And the disciples react then in a way that is changed by the experience that they've had. They know Jesus can fix it. They've seen Jesus fix it. And therefore they are at peace in the fact that they can fix it. So they play with him when he asks. He says, I have compassion on them. What could I possibly do? And of course, the answer for most of us would be like, Jesus, you can do the food thing that you did last time. But they don't do that at all. I think at some level, like with the woman where he says, why would I give food to dogs? And the woman says, well, even dogs, even little puppies get crumbs from the table. Okay, so in the same way that she was kind of playing with them, you can see almost a playfulness from the disciples because they say, how can one satisfy these people with the bread here in the wilderness? Verse four, how could that possibly happen? So they return Jesus a question for a question, which is kind of an indicator of this kind of thing. He, he says, if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they're going to faint on their way, though some of them come from far. Jesus is trying to elicit worry and concern. And what they give him is, I don't know how this can possibly happen. Of course they know. They just saw this not long ago. They know how they can be satisfied. So he asks them, how many loaves do you have? So he, this time, and I think this is really cool, they have the loaves counted and ready to go. They've done everything they can do on their end to prepare for another miracle. So I think this is kind of an amazing little change, but it's super subtle here. How can one satisfy, verse 4? I, I want to pick that question apart. How can one satisfy these people with the bread here in the wilderness? The answer to that question, it's almost a rhetorical question from the disciples, but the answer is nobody can. No one person can fix this problem, unless you call Jesus a person. Like, the only one that can fix this is God, and human beings can't. If you've got 4,000 people to feed, the only thing that can be done is God can multiply the food. But he's not necessarily going to do that without, um, without his work moving forward. So Jesus asks them how much they can have. That's the same as chapter 6, verse 38. How, many, how much food do you have? And the how many here is kind of interesting. God doesn't need anything to do a miracle. He doesn't need the loaves and fishes. He doesn't even need the bread. If God wants to feed these people because he has compassion on these people, he can. But in both situations, he invites the disciples to be part of the miracle. 
You do what you can do, and God will do the multiplication. You bring the loaves and fishes, and he'll multiply and get the work done. I just There's a beauty to this. They come to him, and I think there's an excitement because he says, how many loaves do you have? And they say seven, which is the number of divine perfection. It's exactly what they need. They bring everything they have, and it's perfect. It's what God wants. That, and it's meager at the same time. Like uh, seven loaves does not feed 4,000 people. We should know that. People often say they want to serve God. Well, I want to serve the Lord. I want to serve the King. He's blessed me. He's forgiven my sins. I want to bless him by doing what I can do for the kingdom. And God's answer is typically, well, what do you have to give? And when we say seven loaves, I got very little amount to give, Lord. God says, perfect. That's exactly what I'm asking you for. Give what you have. So the last time they got it from a little boy, this time they've brought it on their own. Slight difference, but a significant difference to the image of this. They're ready to give something to the Lord this time. And the last time it was just a child that was ready to give something. And I think that's just a beautiful difference. Right now we need the bread of God and we can go and, and consume for three days what Jesus has to say to us. We eat the word of God like a meal and we give back as much of it that we can in our lives. And that's the perfect thing. That's what God asked for. So there's seven last time with the five loaves and two fishes. That adds up to seven. There's seven this time, but this time it's just the word of God. There's none of their fish or that image of work included. It's just the bread. All they're offering is the bread of the word of God. Bless you, Tom. So the difference is last time they collected 12 baskets, um, which is kofinos back in chapter 6, and now they collected seven large baskets, spurisi, which is a very different Greek word. The word basket is like an arm basket, something you would carry with you, like a purse. But a spurisi is a large basket or a hamper. It'd be something you put your clothes in as you take them to the laundry. So the difference between 12 little bath like lunch baskets that you would bring with you and seven hampers the number gets smaller but the amount collected is actually far larger and so i i you know at some level well, what does that mean even though they bring the same amount from the human side the first image to the disciples was one of leadership and rule of god but now you get this divine per perfection but it, the divine perfection is actually a greater abundance or a larger amount they collect far more this time than they did last time based on the kind of collection devices they have. In other words, they're ready to do God's work and they're part of doing God's work. And we'll come back to these numbers a little bit, but think about to some extent these ba the 12 baskets, 12 little baskets, kofinos, and now they have seven large baskets, spurisi. Not even close to the same word. Say another similarity between the two feedings. In both situations, Jesus asked the believers to sit down. This isn't just a snack he's going to give them. He's going to give them a whole meal. And so it's not just crumbs that he's giving. He's giving a, enough to where everybody can get fed. And I just think that in both situations, God does the same thing. He takes that perfect seven and he gives thanks. In both situations, God prays. Jesus models prayer. So even though God doesn't change between the two miracles... What Jesus does, does towards God doesn't change either. He still prays. He still gathers what the believers have to give. And there's still a multiplication that happens.
This is the way to do anything, I think, in the kingdom of God. And the slight differences show us what God actually wants from us. They have the same problems, new perspective. There's still people hungry for the word, and that hasn't changed. Faith and trust and endurance are key elements that have changed with the disciples. When you put faith and trust in God and couple it with an endurance to last, that does almost anything God wants us to do in the kingdom. It's perfect. It's the perfect offering. In this instance, they've taken stock of their resources before they, and they wait upon the Lord. They don't initiate that with him. They wait upon him. So they're in the business of serving, but in that service, they've already counted up their loaves beforehand. They didn't have to go off and do that. So when God asks them to do something to be part of that miracle, they're actually ready for it. They've anticipated it. And when we trust in the Lord, we anticipate what he's about to do and what he's going to do. In both in instances, God uses what they have. In both instances, people get fed. And in both instances, there's plenty to gather at the end. And in this instance, what is gathered at the end is divinely perfect. The divinely perfect gift, seven loaves, and a divinely perfect gathering, seven big hampers of bread collected at the end. Massive miracle. But the humility of the disciples, the trust that they show, the faith that they show, that's changed. It's the only change between the two feedings is the nature of the disciples and their part in this interaction. So then he sends them away. This is different from last time, where he takes off. It's time, okay, it's time to go. Let's get out of here. This time he sends them away. And, th and they immediately got into the boat, verse 10. And, and, and or immediately, or he sent them away. I'm sorry. He didn't send the disciples away. He sent the crowd away. Last time, he just left the crowd. This time, he sends the crowd home. Okay, we're all done. Nice Bible retreat. That's all for now. You guys can take off. And he sends them away. So there's order to what Jesus does. There's a way he does it. But this time, um, he sends the crowd away. And then he gets in the boat with his disciples. So he doesn't stay behind. Remember last time, he sent them away, and then the storm hit them? But they were by themselves. This time Jesus is in the boat with them. Indicating to some extent they've done it right. And the presence of the Lord here is actually continuing even after the great miracle. So immediately got into the boat with the disciples and he came to the region of Dalmanutha. And then the disciples came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. So this is a tough passage for a lot of people. Right? It's a confusing passage. It gets mixed up. Uh, we'll start, we'll go through it word by word. Verse 10 says immediately. Um, first, note that this challenge happens immediately after a major sign from heaven, which is the feeding of 4,000. This challenge isn't because they haven't seen anything or watched anything happen. It's because they're not getting what they want. We're in Delmanutha, which is a region. The city at the middle of this region is Magdala, which is where we believe Mary of Magdala came from. So we're back on the other side of Galilee, and we're back in the Jewish territory, and the scribes and Pharisees are back in that spot. Therefore, it could be the scribes and Pharisees weren't with them on the other side of the lake, he went over to the world and showed them wonderful things. But when you're still back with those religious, self-righteous people, they haven't seen anything because they haven't followed Jesus to start with. So they don't know what's going on. So they dispute with them. 
instead of learning something, they dispute. So here's the crazy thing. When you look at the immediately got into the boat with the disciples and then verse 11, then the disciples came out and began to dispute with him. Like, I got to ask, what are they disputing with him about? Like, honestly, he's just riding up on a boat. They're not in a conversation. They're just ready to argue before he even opens his mouth on this side of the lake. And it could be that they want to dispute things that he's said in the past or whatever, but it doesn't say, and Mark doesn't record, what they wanted to dispute with him about. In other words, the argument doesn't matter. The heart is what matters, and their hearts are messed up. The disciples came out to him before Jesus would go into the synagogues, but he stopped going into the synagogues as we've gone through the narrative of Mark, and now they're coming out of the synagogues to go to Jesus to, to mess with him instead of just being happy with their empty synagogues. So they've learned, too, that Pharisees' behavior has changed. They don't debate a message or a particular topic. They're not debating an idea that he presented. They're just here to dispute him. And the way they dispute him is they demand performance. Okay, if you're so right, then make this happen. Do some dance for us. Don't miss the similarity here um, that when the Pharisees came out to meet him, it's the exact same word, exarchomai, that the, the demon-possessed guy in the graveyard came running to the boat to meet Jesus before. Remember last time we fed 5,000 and then he goes to a demon that comes racing up to him as they get out of the boat? This time they feed 4,000 and they come the opposite direction and the Pharisees come running up to him as he gets out of the boat. Don't miss the absolute similarity in, in progression there. Uh, Mark is saying something about the Pharisees when he makes a complete mirror of the guy who had was full of demons to these scribes and Pharisees that seem to have uh, hearts that are in the wrong place. I just thought that was an interesting connection. They seek a sign from him. They demand performance because they don't accept the authority that Jesus has already demonstrated. What more do you need? And I think this gets to be the question for us as Jesus isn't incarnated on earth with us right now. What more evidence could we possibly want or have that would satisfy an intellect? When God's seeking to satisfy the heart and feed us with the word of God, sometimes you get humans where they need their, their head satisfied before their heart. And the proof then can't ever be revealed in the heart because they're constantly trying to work it out in the head. And they're only 12 inches apart, but it seems like a, a, a mile sometimes where you can't get those things resolved. So they, they want, and I think we should note what they're asking for here. They, they want a sign from heaven, and that's particular. They want to see something that looks like Elijah and Elisha, who are images or mirrors of John the Baptist and the Messiah. So they're saying, if you're the Messiah, we want to see fire for heaven. Elijah did fire from heaven, 1 Kings 18.38, right? And the, temp, the, the priests of Baal get killed. In 2 Kings 1, Elisha does fire from heaven too. The guards come out to get him, and boom, they get hit with fireballs from heaven. So what they're asking for is this event, because he's done everything else that Elijah and Elisha did with their miracles. Elijah did some. Elisha did double everything that Elijah did. So they're looking for maybe another multiplier, like quadruple. And he's done more than that because both Elijah and Elisha fed people, healed people, raised the dead, provided food for many, 100 people, not, not 5,000 or 4,000. 
every other miracle of the two prophets has been repeated by Jesus on a much larger scale. Entire cities of people, entire legions of demons, entire crowds of people getting fed. So he's by far amplified every single miracle of those two prophets except for one. He hasn't brought fire from heaven. He hasn't brought destruction. It's the one thing that he's held back on. So when they say this, they are looking at the word. They are looking at what Messiah should do. And they're saying, if you're the Messiah, we should see fire from heaven. Prove it. Make it real. And I think sometimes when we deal with unbelievers, we get the same kind of question. If Christ is real, prove it. And the answer should be like, at some level, like, if you need proof, this isn't worth the discussion. Because what more proof do you need? 5,000 people, 4,000 people just got fed. You can see the Church of Christ expanding all over the earth with no worldly government to support it. No financial system, no corporate headquarters. Right? Yet the message of the gospel goes on. A baby is born in Bethlehem, and that one soul has more impact on the planet earth than every other soul combined. Every other government meeting, every other conglomeration, every other multinational organization, none of them have had the impact on human history that a baby did in a manger. What more proof do you need? What more evidence can we show you? So they're testing him. The word in the Greek is piarezo, to be tempted. It's the same word that's used for the devil out in the wilderness when the devil tempted or tested Jesus. They're asking something from the Lord God Almighty that they don't have a right to ask. God's never invited them to ask. He doesn't owe an answer to them, they owe an answer to him. There are things that God has invited us to test him in. Test him in his blessings. Follow his commands and see if he doesn't bless you. Test him in filling up the storehouse. Uh, Malachi, or, or if you're Italian, it's Malachi, right? Test him in filling up the storehouse. And if you've done what he's asked you to do, test him in that. He's invited us to test him in some things. But we don't, in the same sense, God doesn't answer to human beings. And this story is in all four Gospels. It's the example of what evil looks like, is that when human beings turn to an almighty God and say, you prove it to us. And God's answer is, if what I've done already doesn't prove it to you, then you have a heart problem, not a head problem. If the miracles of God throughout human history are not satisfactory to you, there's nothing that will satisfy you. You seem to know what good and evil is more than God does. That's the sin of the, the Garden of Eden. And, there, and, and it's, it's a tragic situation. So in verse 12, he sighs deeply in his spirit. This isn't just an exhaustive breath. This is a spiritual sigh of, wow. And he just got done feeding 4,000. He's getting out of the boat. He's deeply disappointed to the point of, exhaustion. The connotation of that word is that this is a godly reaction to evil. Even aggressive evil that comes at you and says, prove it. Make me, make me believe. And the answer to that is I'm not going to do a dang thing for you. You think you're so right, you can take that all the way to hell with you. Because God doesn't need that kind of arrogance. Here's the, the amazing hypocrisy of it. Jesus is not only discipling these 12 disciples, but thousands of people in how to be free from sin and death. He's shown them the way. There's joy in their hearts. 
you can see the disciples growing and gaining things. They're actually moving forward in life under the teaching of Jesus. What have the Pharisees and scribes done in the last two years? Has, has, have they, have, the scribes and the Pharisees haven't done one of the things that Jesus has done, yet they're claiming, they, they're positioning themselves like they have authority over him. How dare they do that? They demand more from him when they can't do any of the things he's already done. Why does this generation seek a sign? This is a broad generalization of why do they need fire and damnation and judgment? Why do they want that? They're actually desiring the thing that's pointed at them. It's like someone has a nuclear missile pointed at your city and you walk up and arrogantly say, why don't you fire that missile? Because the judgment's coming for them and they're inviting it. They're wanting that sign from heaven, the fire. And what it's amazing that they're asking for that sign because that's the sign that he's holding back till his second coming. And for good reason. It's to give them a chance to follow. So he says no sign will be given. He's talking about, again, that sign from heaven. They want judgment. They're going to get a cross instead. It's a generation. The generation is a pronouncement for the church age. Since the cross until Jesus' second coming, we're not going to get the sign from heaven. We don't get fireballs of judgment. And he's holding it back. Not, not that God can't do it. God, it's not that he's unable to do this miracle. It's that he's choosing not to. He's holding it back. Verse 13, and he left them. Again, when there's aggressive challenge of God's word, he basically says, I have nothing for you, and he walks away. There's an entire town of people that would have benefited from the ministry of Jesus. People would have been healed. Demons would have cast out. But because of these very little men, they blocked the telling of God's word in that town. And he leaves that area, and he walks away. Verse 13, and he left them, getting into the boat again and departed to the other side. He's going back out to the Gentile side of the lake. He's just going to take off. Now, the disciples had forgotten to take bread. They, didn't, they forgot to take bread because not only are they not as concerned about their physical needs anymore, they're trusting in the Lord so much so that they actually forget about their physical needs. You know, which makes sense in the sense that he's seen people get fed when God wants to feed them, they'll get fed. And they didn't have more than one loaf with them in the boat, which makes you wonder what happened to the seven hampers of food that they just finished with the last mirror. Where did that bread go? And I think the answer is instead of taking it for themselves, the disciples just sent people home with it. Here, you take this and you take that. So people got God's word in the Bible retreat that Jesus was holding, and then they left with God's word, and, and they just had total abundance. But it's amazing that after the two boat rides, they only have one loaf between the whole crew. That means the disciples are giving everything they have to the ministry. I think this is just... What we're seeing here is a changed group of disciples. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. They did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. And then he charged them. Jesus charges them saying, Take heed, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now a leaven is, they're talking about yeast for bread. And what would happen, because they couldn't just go to Cub and get yeast, is when they made one thing of bread, before they put it in the oven, they would take a pinch of that bread off and they would save it for the next batch of bread they would make. And what it had is had enough leaven in that pinch that you could roll it into the new set of dough, let the dough rise, and that bacteria would go all through the dough. 
And before you put it in the oven, you take a pinch off. So before you do any, before you cook any round of bread, you just take a pinch of leaven and you save it, and then you put it in the next one. Well, if God's taking the institution of the temple and the Levitic priesthood, and he's going to take that loaf of bread and move it on and move to a new generation, which he just mentioned, that's going to be called the church, you got to beware. He's not going to take a pinch of leaven from the Levitical priesthood and mix it in with the church. So he's saying to them, you have to beware because what they're doing isn't going to be part of the church age. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So it's not just the Pharisees, it's Herod. So you have two things going on here. What's Herod? Herod represents the Roman rule and power of this age. Don't let the rule of this age, the political powers or the religious, self-appointed religious powers, don't let them influence what you're going to do as a church. The government doesn't get say-so in the church, and the old-school Pharisees don't get say-so in the church. We don't turn to rabbis anymore to tell us how to run our church. So we've moved on. So this idea of taking heed and beware, there's actually two commandments there. One is to take heed, one is to beware. What does it mean to take heed? It means at an individual level, when you take heed of something, you're watching out for it in your own heart. So if I'm going to take heed the leaven of the Pharisees, I don't want to become a Pharisee myself. And I got to take heed to that. I have to pay attention to that on an individual level. And to be aware of it is to think about something outside of myself. I want to be wary of others that come into my, to my church, my fellowships, and they have this attitude walking in the door. Kind of that noses up, they assume they know everything position that people take. I can be so well versed in the Bible. I can be a mature believer. I can be walking in the faith for 30 years and still walk into a church with a humble heart. Because I know darn well that I don't have all the answers for everybody in that room. But the Pharisees, they think they have all the answers for everybody. The government, they have always thought that they have all the answers for everybody. And they don't. And so there's a deep humility that he's telling them to be aware of. He's likely telling them this because they're frozen up and terrified of what just happened with the Pharisees. They get out of the boat. Pharisees come and say, you should get a sign. He says, you don't get a sign. What's wrong with this generation? He gets back in the boat and he walks away. Likely these 12 guys who appreciate the Jewish word, the Old Testament, they're, they're mortified that Jesus just walked away from all these Pharisees and didn't even bother to engage with them. And they're probably really scared of, what are they going to think of us? What are they going to do? They're going to tell the Romans that we're troublemakers. We're going to get, in like somebody's going to get killed here. Roman doesn't take kindly to this. So when he turns to them and says this, he's responding likely to a fear that they have. And he said, instead of being afraid of the Pharisees and the power of Rome, he says, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. There is an image of sin here that's going to infect you if you let it. You can't be afraid of this world. You can't be afraid of religious systems. Beware the high-mindedness, the self-importance, the assumption that they make assuming that they can make a demand of God. You represent the word of God on this earth to the people around you. You're supposed to be learning it. You're supposed to be telling people what it says. Beware of people that come in and tell and, and think that they know more about the word of God than, the, than God does. And be wary of that. We see that all over in our culture. I could give a ton of examples and they're all hot button issues. I'm just going to say watch the news for 15 minutes check a Twitter feed for three seconds, you'll see the three, four issues in this world that they want you to be concerned about. 
And I guarantee what's amazing to me is as you go through that feed, there'll be moral issues that the Bible speaks crystal clear on that get put in front of your face. And you're being told to back off on what the Bible says to be at, at peace with this world, right? If you want to do that, you need to give up the rainbow of Noah and take on the rainbow of the, the new flag in order to be, make those people happy. But here's news for you. Take heed of those people. Don't fear them because they'll never stop. They have their kingdoms. This idea of Herod, he was the image of power and authority for this part of the world. He was the absolute authority. He had the power of life and death in his hand. He held the title, he had the position, and he had nothing for the kingdom of heaven. He had nothing to offer them. And the church doesn't need governments to do his thing. In, in the church, God's authority stands tall. Then you get to verse 16. They reasoned among themselves. They started thinking about this, saying, is it because we don't have bread? Like, honestly, they completely missed it. <laughs> this is amazing. But Jesus being aware of it, so he's reading their mind, and, or he's hearing them. They're on the same boat. He says to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Oh my goodness, what are you guys talking about? Well, you said leaven, and leaven has to do with bread, and we only got one loaf of bread, and we weren't going to bring it up, Lord, but you brought it up. Don't you yet perceive or understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, don't you see? Having ears, don't you hear? And do you not remember? What is it that gives us sight, gives us hearing, what is it that helps us to perceive and understand the word of God but the Holy Spirit? And when Jesus is with them and he's showing them these things and they're doing so well with that last feeding, he's like, I just don't get it. Don't you get what's going on? What's he asking them to remember? He's asking them to remember that he just fed thousands. It's not about the bread, right? Like, stop being worried about this world. So this is a great summary of Mark so far. What have you learned from chapters 1 through 7? And just like, remember what God's done. And Mark's kind of introduced everything that Jesus has done. Mark chapter 4 was the parable of the seeds, that explanation that our hearts are like soil. Mark chapter 4, verse 12, Jesus quotes Isaiah having to do with seeing and hearing. And now he's like, don't you see? Don't you hear? He's already taught them what seeing and hearing is about a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. So when he says, don't remember, it's not about the bread, it's about the kingdom of God. They aren't to just blindly trust. They've seen things that Jesus has done. They're supposed to remember all of those things. This is why Mark's writing it down. Their understanding should come from what they've already seen. Bread is from God. So what we don't capture in these verses is tone of voice. I mean, we have to infer the tone of voice that Jesus has here. And so... I think people can read these verses and they actually hear different tones. You could read this in anger where Jesus is like, you know, why do you reason because you have no bread? Why are you not perceiving? They can actually hear anger in that if they want. Another way you could read this is you could read it with love. Where Jesus says to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Don't you get it? And there's this gentle, caring tone. You can read this with any tone and I would suggest... This is the perfect media for personalizing the Word of God. When we say the Word of God is alive, I think you're going to hear Jesus say this to you, 17 and 18, in a very similar tone that your parents would talk to you when you were being disciplined. 
and he's going to speak to you in a, in a tone and in a way that you do it. Now, if you have messed up situation or your parents were in sin when they were doing those things, that can mess up how people hear the word of God. Because God is love. Everything he says is with truth and grace. So even if it's harsh, it's harsh because he wants you to learn, not just harsh for being harsh. Even if he loves you, he's going to love you, but not love without correction. Like that, those are the two error sides for parents, right? He's going to love you and give you correction. And there's a balanced tone to hear that with. We just don't see it. We have to read it and we have to picture what that sounds like. So let's connect this back to the bread. He points to both of the feedings here. And I think that's interesting. Bread isn't a lacking resource. It's not about the bread. He's speaking spiritually. And then he says, and notice that he's pointing to both of the feedings. In other words, it wasn't, it's odd when people say, well, it was a mistake that Mark wrote two stories. No, it's not, because that sets up what Jesus says in verse 19 and 20. He actually references them both. That's why Mark wrote about them both. Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of, full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, 12. That's 12 baskets, Kofi knows. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said seven. That's baskets, spurose. And he said to them, how is it you don't understand it? And it's, I was kind of like, wait, I don't understand. Like, what are you trying to say here? So they have to think about it. He never explains it. You don't get verse 22 where he explains it for you. So he want, it's like we're being invited to like slow down and absorb this a little bit. If we want to understand, so suniami, bring together, connect, or put perception around things that are meant to be perceived. That's the word that God uses there. How is it you don't connect these things? So when he says, when I broke, by the way, five loaves and seven, he doesn't mention the fishes, which I think is interesting because in the second telling, it's all about the loaves. But Mark or, or Peter throws in, there were also fish involved. <laughs> like he throws in the fish there. So that idea, if you, if you look at fish as an image of work, that yes, there was work involved, but it was all God. And they just kind of frame it that way. When Jesus refers to it, he's only talking about the bread. And you got five loaves for 5,000 and they collect 12 little baskets. And then they get seven loaves for 4,000 and they get many large baskets, huge hampers full of bread, and they get seven of those. Don't you get it? You can come with more stuff or less stuff. God's going to still overprovide. So when he says the leaven of the Pharisees, don't let that high-mindedness come into your church. And they're like thinking bread. And he's like, no, 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 it's not about bread. It's about the feeding of the people. So he's pointing them back to the feeding, the, the feeding of the 4,000, feeding the 5,000. That's what matters for the kingdom of God. The Pharisees don't matter. And he's showing this in context of all of these things happening together. So the story, then immediately the Pharisees, and then they get back into the boat and they have this conversation. The Pharisees think that they need to be, that they're the only individuals that need some sort of miracle or blessing to prove to them that you're doing the right thing. Jesus is saying, we just fed 4,000 people. I don't have to prove anything to the Pharisees. The numbers aren't even close. He points out the amount of bread that gets there. It's like a question to the reader. Can you put this all together? Can you? Can you put all of this together? And Mark writes his book that way. Perceive it. Understand it. Here's the book of Mark. 
He gets baptized. He gets tested. He proclaims the good news. He teaches other people. He heals other people, casts out demons, raises the dead. The blind see, the deaf hear, and then the Judaic priests come in corrupt. And Jesus says, I reject your elder laws. I don't need your permission to heal and help people. Jesus brings a new covenant with humanity and the old covenant doesn't come with it. So there's a sequencing to Mark. There's a feeding. Then they say, show us the sign. And he says, beware the leaven. He focuses on the numbers. Remember the abundance? How much was there? Twelve, governance. Remember the abundance? How much was there? Seven, divine perfection. God's setting up a new governing structure for a divinely perfect church age. Put it all together. So for Gentiles, yep, they were involved in that second feeding. First to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Remember the abundance? So I think the two feedings have to do with the ministry of Jesus to the Jews primarily, teaching his disciples to go out into the world and serve the Gentiles. And so you have these feedings. And the church age is about feeding and bringing as many people into the community of Christ as possible. How do you not understand? Jesus simply expects more of them. They have a memory. They're supposed to use it. So this is a reprimand from a beloved teacher. He sighs at the Pharisees and he's exasperated with his own disciples. So both of them forget the signs they've already been shown and the mercy and the sweet healings and the wonders that God's done because they want something different. The Pharisees want Jesus to be coming with judgment and power and the disciples want Jesus to make nice with those people. They both want something for Jesus that he's not there to give. This is a great lesson for us. We should write this lesson down. We see the work of God as he gives it to us. Nothing more, nothing less. And it's almost impossible for us to be content with that because we always want to do more than God wants us to do. And then I think for people falling away from the Lord, they want to do less than what God calls them to do. But there is a way that leads to life, and it's a straight and a narrow path. Do what God's called you to do. Nothing more, nothing less. So again, in patience, I think Jesus shows them one more time. Note, this is the only miracle that's recorded that takes Jesus two tries. So let's perceive and understand that. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him, and they begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on them, he asked if he saw anything. And he looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking. Those would be called ants. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and he made him look up and he was restored and saw someone, saw everyone clearly. And then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. This looks really similar to healing the deaf man. So blind see, deaf hear. You get one of those stories um, on either side. It's really similar in the fact that Jesus is spitting and touching, like he's ignoring all uh, pharisaical Talmud Mishnah laws, and he's doing some of these things. It's different from the past healings, but sim more similar to the healing with the deaf man in that he ignores elder law completely when he does this. The second time is more mundane, I think with a blind man, sometimes what happens with the eyes when they're not working right is they get caked in or they get a gunk built up on them. He's literally taking that gunk and wiping it away. 
And I think the reason this miracle comes here right after that reprimand of the disciples is they've already been healed, but God has some work to do on their eyes. And this is part of the thing where he asked the, the blind man, can you see yet? And he goes, I just, I see this. And so Jesus just does it again. And there's a mercy to that. I just love this. He's showing his disciples what sometimes healing takes time, right? So they don't get it right away, but he just teaches them. And, and, but the point is they're going to be able to see this eventually. So it's not if you see it the first time or not. It's, not if, it's if you let Jesus keep working on you. The miracle of Jesus is calling them was previously done, but they have a walk with Jesus where they got to shake off the buildup of that old system that's covering their eyes. The old Pharisee system, they're so trained to obey the Pharisees that he's got to get that off of the eyes or they're not going to be able to see clearly. Likewise, salvation happens to everybody at the moment of their decision to follow. They're free from sin and death because Jesus beat it on the cross. But Jesus has to let his word sink into us and saturate that spit from the mouth of God has to work its way in to get the gunk off our eyes to understand what all that means. So we can be freed from sin, but we still have a battle with sin for the rest of our lives that goes forward. The problem is we're not, in, we're not doomed to lose that battle. We're actually equipped with everything we need to win that battle. So they're being taught to see things differently. Not to fear the Pharisees, but to heal the blind. Like help them to see. And this maybe is a kindness that he's showing them this miracle that takes him two tries. So some people argue, well, he was healed from this. The healing happened the first time God wanted it to happen, but the gunk still had to get out of there. And God heals from the inside out. So our heart can be purified at the moment we turn towards Jesus, saving us from that sin, but we still have life on this earth ahead of us when that happens. So we have to work at it. Get the gunk off the eyes. But the heart is already saved. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked the disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And so they answered, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You're the Christ. And then he strictly warned them that they should not tell anyone about him. Because if they go around saying that, he's going to be put on a cross before he's supposed to be put on a cross. So he's timing things out. Jesus doesn't ask again because he doesn't know the answer to the question. Jesus asks questions to get it out of them. He's teaching them. He's setting them up. Uh, John the Baptist had been killed at this point back in chapter 6. So the idea that the spirit of John the Baptist moved to Jesus, that's a weird idea that misunderstands who Jesus is. But it's some of the ways people misunderstand who Jesus is. Elijah had been taken up in fire, and as he stood up to Ahab, he did miracles. He dressed like John the Baptist, but that's also odd to say that Elijah has come back to earth in the form of Jesus. It's even weirder because, really, Elijah set up the ministry of Elisha, who did twice the miracles. People calling him Elijah, they're missing who he is. They're calling him the precursor to the Messiah when they call him Elijah. In the, in the, and we're just doing this in the evening Bible study. Like that image is just wrong. They're missing the fact that if anything, Jesus is the, is the image or the mirror of Elisha, not Elijah. John the Baptist is the mirror of Elijah. So people went 
to the people. They also said maybe he's one of the prophets. If anything, both John the Baptist and Elijah were unsuccessful at reforming the governments that they were called to. Like John the Baptist got killed by Herod. And Elijah, like, he didn't successfully convert Ahab. On the other hand, Elisha started a movement amongst the people that actually did change the relationship of God to the northern kingdom. And in the same way Jesus has shown up, he's actually starting a church that will absolutely change the nature of God's relationship to his people. So this is an odd thing. To say Jesus is just one of the prophets, that's complimentary, but it's also inaccurate. It misunderstands who Jesus is. They're underestimating Jesus in every one of those guesses, and they underestimate the power of God and what God's done. So who do people say that Jesus is today? Oh, you get tons of answers to this. Well, Jesus is a fable. Jesus is a, a wise sage. No, he wasn't. He called himself God. Wise teachers don't call themselves God, right? Uh, he was an activist. He was a civil activist trying to bring social justice to the country. I've actually heard that. When God does justice, he doesn't need an adjective in front of it. God just does justice. He was an image of the Western patriarchy. That one's online too. That's a crazy answer to the question. All of these underestimate God and they're blind in that they don't see who Jesus is. So as Jesus does the healing of the blind person after the warning of the Pharisees, he then brings them to this thing saying, who do you say that I am? That's the only question that matters. It's the real question. Honestly, I feel like, like Mark's building up to a climax of everything we've read so far in the book. It doesn't matter what the Pharisees say. It matters what you say. So if the Pharisees critique Jesus and get into their ivory towers and have discussion meetings and book clubs and everything else and they're figuring everything out, none of that even matters. What matters is who you say Jesus is. So Peter answers him. And this isn't just the Peter perspective. In Matthew 16, 16 and Luke 9, 20, um, they also have Peter being listed here, right? So Peter's not just saying he was the one that answered because he likes himself. It was confirmed by the other Gospels. He's the guy that spoke up here. And he says, you are the Christ. This is the first mention of the word Christ from verse 1, chapter 1 of Mark. So we've gone all the way since the very first verse to get this word another time. You're the Christ. We've arrived at the thesis point of Mark. He's more than a prophet. He's the next era of God's work on earth. He's the Messiah, the anointed, the Christ come for the salvation of humanity. What's the salvation? Well, from the Garden of Eden, all of mankind thinks they know better than God. And so we have a curse. It's called sin. And that curse is dooming all humanity to death. And so we are saved from death by the Messiah, by the Christ, by the anointed one of God. And the Jews had to sacrifice every single day to cover their sin. They could do nothing to resolve the situation. They could only temporarily cover it with the blood of the Lamb. But when the blood of the Lamb's eternal, we don't need to do sacrifices every day. Messiah actually covers that sin forever. And he forgives sin with all power and all dominion. That's the true power of God. Don't underestimate that in your life. That's absolutely what it is. Matthew 16 includes that God reveals this to Peter. Like Jesus points out, God revealed that to you. You didn't come up with that. 
So in that sense, Peter is speaking the word of God with the simple truth that you are the Christ. That's it. That acknowledgement, that's, that's the healing of the blindness. So the fact that Peter doesn't get stuff and he still fears Pharisees and he still screws up, which he's going to do in a few verses, that's not the problem. Like the problem's already been solved, even though he still screws up. Tell no one about him. It's not that time yet. God's orchestrating this. I would love to stop the chapter like right here. And we've, we're pretty deep into it. Like this is a good place to stop because it's so, such a blessing. But Mark, the author, and I think Peter, the preacher, they didn't stop the teaching here. The next word is and in verse 31. This isn't the end of the lesson. Verse 21 is a summative statement, a collection of all the teachings summed out without specifics. And so in verse 31 it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, answering the critique we just had a few verses ago, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spoke this word openly. This is a big point for Mark. This wasn't in secret. He made it known to his disciples before the cross. He let them know what the cross was coming. They just didn't want to hear it. So we have a number of points where Jesus wants them to have spiritual eyes to see. And he easily fixes the physical eyes with a little spit and finish. But the heart takes more work. He can't just spit on our heart. Our heart has to turn. So he's going to suffer. I mean, he's telling his disciples, look, this is what it's like. You guys think I'm here to conquer? I'm not. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm not going to be a political conqueror. I'm not bringing signs from heaven. I'm not going to judge with fireballs and hit Roman armies and legions with death. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be rejected. He's not trying to please the leaven of this generation. He's not interested in it. I'm going to be killed, he says. So he's not Elijah, definitely not. Elijah was never killed. But Jesus has a plan, and it's not a plan of the flesh. He will experience death, and then he's going to beat it. He's going to rise again. So he's going to be fully killed and fully resurrected and risen. Wow. Like, I'm, going to do, I'm not Elijah. I'm going to do it different than Elijah. I'm going to actually be dead, just like all of you are doomed to be. But then I'm going to beat death, showing that your death can be beaten. I'm going to save you from death. It's coming. So he spoke this word, verse 32. It's not a teaching. It's not a message. It's not a parable. It's the word. He spoke this word. So this is prophecy. That's how we introduce prophecy. Jesus' words are God's words, and a word of God or a New Testament of God is Jesus' word that he's spoken. This is the New Testament, a new word. This was the evil of the scribes and Pharisees. They had this elder law, but what Jesus' word is saying is more important or it takes precedence over the human law of the scribes and Pharisees. He spoke this word. Key points for Mark. It was well before it happened. He knew it was going to happen. And he spoke this word openly. He didn't conceal it. They had everything they needed to understand. In the same way, you and I have everything we need to understand the gospel of Christ. We got it all. So Jesus taught that, that he would suffer, die, and rise again. He's not going to conquer and suppress like David. And that's defying their expectations of Messiah. By referring to the Son of Man, Jesus could talk openly because he's not claiming himself. He gives the Pharisees nothing to bite into. But he talks about the Messiah, and they already think that he's the Christ, the Messiah. So they've made the connection. So he can go forward and talk about the Messiah as a third person and not be getting sent to the, the chair until he's good and ready to go. 
So it creates a nice setup. No fire from heaven. I got a different plan. The Pharisees don't get fire, they get a cross. That's the plan of God. It's not what you wanted, but it's what you're going to get. Peter doesn't like this. And he admits it. And I think this is interesting. Like the open defiance of this, Jesus, he's kind of going to Jesus saying, Jesus, you've got to tone this stuff down. You don't need to die. We want you to conquer. Like he's challenging the word that is in verse 32. Jesus spoke his word and Peter's going to challenge that word. No, 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 Jesus. You don't have to do it like that. We can do, we can do the gospel and make it seeker friendly. We don't have to antagonize anybody. We can tell people about repenting from their sin, but do it in a nice way by not mentioning sin. They just need to repent in general. And like that's going to get along with the Pharisees a lot better. The scribes aren't going to get mad at you. You will not get hate Twitter tweets on your Twitter feed. Like it, Let's just take it easy with people. So G Peter is putting his own views in front of God's views. And the way Mark has structured this chapter, he's doing the exact same thing the Pharisees did. He's putting his views in front of God's views. We have to take heed of this because that leaven can be in our heart too. Like it's not just the scribes and Pharisees, this ambiguous group of nasty people. It's Peter, the head of the church, that's got to struggle with this idea. If you think you know better than God how God's going to do your life, you're really not serving God with your life. You haven't given it to him. It's not God's life to, to use as he pleases. He's ashamed of what Jesus is saying because he doesn't like it. Then verse 32, then Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. And when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, notice Jesus sees his disciples. He's not just talking to Peter. He's talking to the whole group. G Peter tries to talk to him one-on-one. -on -one. Jesus talks back to the whole group. He rebukes Peter in front of them saying, get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You're more worried about your opinion than you are about God's plan. Stop it. So he gently warned them to, you know, depending on how you read the tone in his voice, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. But here he's not gently warning. There's no, you get the tone from verse 33. There's no way to read this as like a kind, sweet, get behind me, little Satan. So little Satan's adding to the, the word. That's not what he says. Get behind me, Satan, adversary, enemy of God's people. Don't get in the way of what God's doing. I love the fact that sometimes when people have concerns, they want to bring those concerns up privately, not with the whole group. Because they know that their concerns are theirs. They're not God's. So they'll pull you aside. I just have some concerns. Right? And one of the, I like that Jesus just blows it up. And like, he just announces in a big, bold voice, get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Very powerful statement. Again, people struggle with this because it's a strong rebuke. If your Jesus has got like a halo around his head and he's soft and gentle and pets little lambs when he's walking around, like this isn't an image that fits very well. This is a strong Jesus. This is a Jesus that knows what he's doing. He's competent, he's willful, and he's trying to teach. And Peter hasn't picked up on it. He's a blind man and he's been given sight, but he's still got gunk on his eyes. So Jesus is kind of spitting a rebuke at him. Now I'm going to get that gunk off your eyes so you can actually see. Here's the thing with Peter, and I think this is the thing that we can take heed of and beware of. He's coming with good intentions. But they're his intentions. But you couldn't argue with Peter and say, 
you know, well, if Jesus got to die on a cross, let him die on a cross. And Peter's like, no, I'm looking out for Jesus. When the scribes and Pharisees do this, it's because they're looking out for the body of believers. And when Christians do this, they do it because they're looking out for the name of Jesus. And it's always done in the context of, well, I'm just trying to look out for God. Well, God doesn't need you as his lookout. Never asked you to do that. He's asked you to do other things, but not that. The command, and I think we get caught on the word Satan because it's so big and in neon lights. We miss the command, get behind. Peter wants to get out in front of Jesus, and Jesus says to get behind him. The correction for this behavior, if we recognize it in ourselves, is to simply get on board with what Jesus is doing. Matthew's got a bit more detail on this story than Mark does. But Mark gives us the edited version of this. The Pharisees want fire, verse 11. Jesus rebukes them, verse 12. Jesus warns the disciples of that leaven, verse 15. The disciples don't get it, verse 16. He reminds them of the miracles, verse 21. God can provide for you. This is about a spiritual ministry. Verse 22, he heals a blind man to show them a physical example of this. And the blind man needs a moment or two to see what he needs to see. And in verse 29, Peter confesses Christ, speaking the word of God. But in verse 33, he speaks the words of Satan. And he needs a moment more to see. Spiritually speaking, Peter has been healed, but he still needs to get that gunk off his eyes. So the enemy keeps our eyes on the earth on the physical, on ourselves, and he wins when he does that, even though we say we're good people. Peter believed in Jesus as the Christ, and I think at this point Jesus loves him. He's called him. He's one of his disciples. Peter's on his way to heaven. He's been healed. The gift is done. The price has been paid. Peter believes that God has already spoke through him because he did in verse 29. You say this because God's revealed this to you in the Holy Spirit. So, if the Holy Spirit's working with Peter, it's because God loves Peter. Peter believes Jesus' safety and well-being are more important than the calling of God in Jesus' life. And in that case, it's not. So Peter believes he knows the scriptures better than God knows the scriptures. That's a scary place to be. Peter believes he knows better than Jesus and that he can tell Jesus what to do. Isn't it amazing that he said, you're the Christ, and then he's giving the Christ advice? That's a weird, conflicting thing that's in all of our hearts. If God's Lord, then let him be Lord. For you're mindful of the things of God, but, but not of the things of, you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Peter is, in the same sense, the Pharisees are evil and have leaven because they disbelieve Jesus in hostility. Peter is good and is working with God, but he disbelieves Jesus in love. Both of them are disbelieving Jesus. And that's the connection here, I think, if we have eyes to see. So he can go from God's voice to Satan's voice within a conversation. So we have to be wary of this. We have to be aware of it. Sincerity is not necessarily God's word to others. It could just be our feelings. So to be mindful means to use our mind, to use reason, to think about and set our minds upon the things of God. And if we do that, we're in a lot better shape. If we encourage others to sensibly consider the kingdom first, we're in line with the Holy Spirit. If we speak the same message as Satan, worry, worry about what's happening here on earth, 
be concerned with what's going on in politics. We're actually speaking and helping out the cause of Satan. So let our words be few. Let God's words be many. Peter never chooses at any point to reject Jesus Christ. He chooses to trust his gut and his feelings over what Jesus just said to him. So likely, he's probably protecting him. How do we avoid this? Jesus already said, don't you remember? Remember what Jesus has already done. Remember what he's told us in his word. How do we prevent this? Read the book and know what it says. Argue about it. Talk about it. Dissect it carefully with each other. That's how we avoid this ever happening in our life. We are aware of when other people are doing it and we're, we take heed to it in ourselves. When Jesus says it, we believe it. We accept his commands over our feeling. That's how we avoid it. I'm just going to do what God says. Being used or sinning, I, I want to point this out. I think this is really important. This does not end Peter's walk with Christ. There's nothing here that's being called, get behind me, Satan, saying the wrong thing is not damning Peter because he said the wrong thing. That's not what Jesus is doing here. In fact, he's chosen Peter. He's called Peter. He's helped Peter to see. So we know that he has healed the blindness. But when he's doing this, he's helping Peter to grow. And God sometimes has to rebuke us for our growth, but there's nothing judgmental here. In fact, judgment's not going to come until the second coming. And I think that's important because people are like, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I do the wrong thing? You can't say or do the wrong thing. Jesus loves you, and in grace, he's forgiven you. Move forward and serve him. So the next lesson has Peter's total attention. You just got called Satan by your teacher. Now your ears are up. You're ready to hear something new from this guy. So the next lesson, I think he's ready to learn, and he's going to teach this to every one of his disciples. They would be, the attention would be wrapped. I don't think Jesus has barked at the disciples in the book of Mark, has he? So he kind of maybe raises his voice a little with Peter. And you know when that happens to a soft-spoken guy and they raise their voice? Woo! Everybody's tuned in. So listen like that. Hear what he says. When he called the people to himself, now he's going to teach more than just the disciples. He wants everybody to hear this. With his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever, whoever desires to save your life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, there's that word generation again, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with his holy angels. Whoa. <laughs> right? It's like, what does Mark still have to write about? Like, here it is. But we should note, Peter does learn this lesson. He preaches this message for the rest of his life. He hears every word of this and writes it down, hands it to Mark. Peter gets this. This is why he tells the story the way he does. I think he's telling us the story in the form of chapter 8 because he wants us to see that he needed to learn a lesson. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It made him better, not worse. He wanted a conqueror. Jesus gave him a cross. What a great Christmas present. <laughs> like, that's the gift. You want me to beat the Romans? Well, I'm not going to beat the Romans. I'm going to beat your own soul into compliance. He's not dealing death, 
but he's asking for us to give our own lives for him. He's not going to take our life. He's asking for us to give it. What a gift. So they challenge Jesus is dying, and then he expands it. He says, not only am I going to die, I want you to die. And I want you to take up your cross. Remember at this point, they, don't, they haven't seen Jesus on a cross. He's referencing something that they would not have connected to a Christian walk at this point. So when he brings up the cross here, we do it in retrospect. He's doing it looking forward. Jesus didn't need Peter's satanic concern for life, and we don't either. We don't have to be concerned for our lives. Our lives belong to Jesus Christ Almighty. Therefore, we do his work. So this is a chapter 7 build-up to the full charge of the gospel message. And this is the gospel message like Peter would have preached it. He would have done all of these stories to build up to this point. You give up your life to serve the king. First of all, whoever desires, right? Let's just break this part down. Verse 34, whoever desires. That means anybody, Jews, Gentiles, slave, free, CEOs and entry-level workers, men, women, whoever wants to can. It's your choice. If you want to serve the king, it's there. But here's what it looks like. Whoever desires to come after me, that, that assumes you have to want to follow Jesus. I've done my own life and it doesn't work so well. So I'm going to choose to do what Jesus has asked me to do. And I'm going to choose, instead of being my own boss, I'm going to let Jesus be my boss. I'm going to give it up. And there's an image of this in the Old Testament where somebody who's a servant gets released after a certain amount of time. But at that time, they can make a choice. And if they want to be, if they want to come under the household of God or the household of their master, they had a good master. They could go back, take a peg, and nail their ear to the doorpost of the house. Like, I'm not leaving. Like, this is as good as, like, grabbing the altar, right? I'm going to nail my ear to the doorpost of the house, making my blood flow down that thing. But what it says is, I'm going to attach myself to this family forever. And a servant, instead of walking away from a bad master, they can say, you're a good master. I want, I want to serve you for the rest of my life, and I'm going to attach myself to your house. Whoever desires can. If you want to go after Jesus, that's we're going to take our life, and we're going to nail it to the post. We're giving it to Jesus. And I'm not recommending anybody actually do this. We are speaking in spiritual terms. Where the Old Testament's a physical example, the New Testament's generally a spiritual fulfillment. It says, let him deny there. In the Greek, let him deny himself is to affirm no acquaintance or connection with, to forget or lose sight of the interests of someone. To deny yourself is to say, I have no connection with me anymore. This is like Batman and Alfred, right? The butler is not about the butler. The butler is not even connected anymore. I've given up my life. It belongs to my master. And I just serve him. I, someone knocks on my door and I answer it on behalf of the master. You can't give an offering and then try to protect your offering or dictate how your offering gets used or control how you get used by the king. Like, that's the danger. That's the leaven. Your interests to the service of the master, the master's interests have to totally eclipse or be completely fulfilling what you want to do with your life. So it's not about elevating yourself or getting ahead or getting further on. It's fulfilling 
what the master wants for our life, not what we want for our life. That's the part that has to die. Peter wants Jesus to do these things, and Jesus calls him Satan. That's the message of the enemy. You know what's right for your life. The message of God is, no, you don't. Your creator knows what to do with your life. So you take up a cross. And again, that would have been a striking image to them. That would have been almost as strong as, get behind me, Satan. Take up your cross. They knew what crosses were. When they walked into towns that were run by Romans, there were people hanging by the door. They, they knew the agony and the pain, and they were in total terror of that cross. It was the most fearful message Romans could send, and for 800 years the Romans ruled under the fear of the cross. If you cross Rome, you'll either be immediately killed, or even worse, if your heart hates Rome, we'll put you on that cross. You will suffer in front of all your friends and family. Horrible death. And when Jesus said, take up your cross, that would have hit people right in the, holy moly, this is a different message. We thought we were following a general. We're not following a general. We're following a person that's going to get killed by Rome. So when we take up our cross, I think this is part of counting the cost. When we take up our cross, we follow Jesus. That means there might be struggle and pain that go with it. I feel so grateful we live in a country where I don't necessarily have physical struggle and pain because I serve the Lord God Almighty. I might have people that don't like me or yell at me or get mad at me. Some Christians even might get hit or thrown in jail. That's nothing, Paul said. He's learned to be content even in a jail cell. Okay. It's not about the elder law, the religious traditions. It's about denying yourself. So when you're promoting traditions, that's not what God's asked you to do. He's asked you to deny yourself and follow him. One way to take up the cross is actually the word elevate in the Greek. To lift it up like a banner. That's crazy. I'm supposed to take up a cross and be like, I'm dead. And that's what Paul does in his letters. I'm a bondservant to Christ. I've died to myself. I serve the king. I speak on behalf of the king. What comes out of my mouth is what's come out of the word of God, the fellowship of the saints, and the Holy Spirit. Word of God first. And to take up that cross and make it into a banner. This is why we wear cross necklaces and have crosses on our t-shirts. And have, We took an instrument of death and said, we're dead to ourselves and we're proud of it. Right? I don't live for me anymore. You can't beat somebody who's already dead. Amazing image when he says to take up the cross or to elevate the cross, the banner. It has a striking image that uh, we would see in the Old Testament that I, I thought was worth. I know it's going to take me a little longer today to finish, but I want to bring this up because the connection's amazing. This is why Jesus came to earth. In Numbers 21, if you want to flip back there, you can read around the passage, Numbers 21, Genesis, Exodus, um, Numbers. Therefore, the people came to Moses. I'm going to start in verse 7. People came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. That's probably how Peter felt when he was rebuked by Jesus. I've sinned. Oh my gosh, I've sinned. I didn't mean to do that. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us, the sins. So Moses prayed for the people, and then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he elevated it on a pole. He made a, uh, he made a banner out of it. 
He put it upright. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. This is an image of Christ that's like so striking. I wonder if Peter even thought of this when he said, get behind me, Satan. Many people are killed by the serpents. We live on the earth. This place is nasty. But we wake up every morning and we say, I'm not going to look at the serpents. I'm not going to look at my sin. I'm just done. I'm going to look at Christ on a cross who crucified sin and death when he died on that cross. He took it to town and he won. So some raise their eyes difficultly. Some raise their eyes deliberately. Some raise their eyes willfully. Some raise their eyes not sure that it'll help them or not. Some raise their eyes with great certainty that it's going to help them. But when we raise our eyes, we see Christ on a cross. When we see a baby in a manger, that leads to Christ on a cross. That is the Messiah God gave us, maybe not the one we expected, but that's the one we got, and it's a path to life. So we choose to lift up our eyes, to pick up our cross, deal with it, and appreciate it as the salvation that it is. Jesus says, and follow me. Don't stop by just looking up. Do the fun part too. Following Christ is the fun part. And I just, this is an amazing message that he's teaching us. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, elevate his cross, and follow me. So we take that sin, we hand it to Jesus, we let the cross put it to death like it should be. And Jesus says, like he said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. He has the power to do that. He's demonstrated that power because he would forgive sins. And he said, is it easier to forgive somebody's sins? Or is it easier to say, get up, get up and walk? So he not only forgives our sins, he says to follow him, get up and walk. Do what it takes to do it. Verse 35, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Are you trying to save your own life? Don't. Give it to the Lord. This speaks for itself. It's not a simple like washing of hands or fasting properly. It's total self-denial, which takes some discipline. God wants us to deny our, our very life. It's not our life anymore. It's God's. And that's actually what saves you. So Peter's intent was to save Jesus's life, but he was, he was doing it at the expense of Jesus's word. And that's the challenge. So if I gave my life to Jesus, I'm happy to go at any time. Lord, you want to take me home today? That's great. You want to leave me here to do your work? Even better. I'll do both. To live as Christ and to die as gain. It's not mine to choose. So I'm not going to sit around and worry about how long I'm going to live or what virus I might contract or if I'm going to do what I need to do that day or if I'm good enough for God. Or I'm not, I've got to let go of that thing. I got to say, Lord, my life's yours. Good or bad, you wanted me, I gave me to you. And you got me as your gift for my sake and the gospels. So we lose our life for the sake of Jesus. And when he says gospel, it literally means good news. So we lose our life for the sake of Jesus Christ because he's the one we serve and follow. But he gave us good news to share with people. And we're supposed to tell people that good news. We're left behind on this planet, this place of sin and death. Our job's to tell as many people as possible that if you don't want to die here, there's somebody willing to take you home. And he's already paid the price for you to go home. You can just go. So a seed looks like something dead in the fall. But you put it in the ground 
and that dead thing comes to life again. So to think it's just dead and throw it in a garbage can is the wrong thing to do with the seed. The thing to do with the seed is plant it and let it grow. So when we say for the sake of the gospel, there is this image of the harvest of what we're supposed to be doing. So honestly, if you can't see what needs to be done, you have to pray that God opens your eyes. I look around every Sunday, even with a small Christmas crew, I see people that are growing in their faith that maybe need something the Lord's put on my heart. So I want to make sure I'm sharing what I'm seeing in the word. I see people that need love, that need help, that need counsel. I know I need those things. I see people that just need kindness. And so it is not hard to look around and see that there are people that need things around me that God wants to give assurance, kindness, love, grace, and peace. It's not just Jesus, but the words of Jesus that we're supposed to take and give our life for. So Jesus says to share the good news, and I look around the world and I see way more of that than I can ever do on my own. All I have to give is my loaves, the word that God's put in my heart. That's all I have to offer. And Jesus has shown them twice that that can feed thousands of people if he wants it to. If he blesses it, if God wants you to do that, you can be saving some 50, some 100, some thousands. And it doesn't matter to me how many. I'm not supposed to aspire to those things. I'm just supposed to serve, and God will use me as he pleases. Verse 36, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, loses his soul? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is nothing. Doesn't get you, there's no gain in you trying to work for yourself. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The answer to that is nothing. There's nothing you have to offer that's as valuable as your soul. So you can have all the world. I just want Jesus. It's the only thing I want to claim. Verse 37, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You have nothing to offer. We come to the bargaining table with God. And the, the Jewish religion is that I can do everything that the Leviticus says and I will have honored God in every way, shape, and form. And my deeds and my works will be a, an appropriate exchange for my soul. Christ says that's not the case at all. He's teaching it right here. You actually bring things to the temple and that's just an image of what we're supposed to be doing. And he told him in Deuteronomy, you're supposed to serve with your heart, mind, and soul. But the Jews forgot about the heart. They just kept doing the mind and, and the works. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He's saying this in response to Peter. Peter, if you don't like what I'm saying, you're against the work of God on earth. Don't put yourself in that position. Saints, if Jesus loved Peter, then Peter needed to hear this. He also loves us, and he wants us to hear this. Peter was loved, but he needed to have Jesus spit in his spiritual eye to get the gunk out. You too are loved, and we might need to grow in this area. Maybe the Word of God is different than we want it to be. But are we ashamed to talk about it? That's a good question. I Honestly, I'll just confess to you, I think I spent 40 years of my life being ashamed to speak the name of Jesus in places where I wasn't supposed to because the world told me that. And then at some point you just say, I'm just done being ashamed. Forget it. I've wasted too many of my days worrying about where I'm supposed to or not supposed to say certain things. Why would I be ashamed of Jesus when he's offering salvation? My, afraid of his words? 
do we hesitate to tell other people what the Bible said? Like, honestly, we're in it every week together. Are we out telling people what we learned on Sunday? Because we should be. Why not? He says this adulterous generation, he's not talking about sexual adultery. He's talking about people that go outside the covenant. People that put their faith in other things besides God, especially putting faith in themselves. He says, and sinful. Sin is to put yourself, to miss the mark, to put yourself above God, to think you know better than God what good and evil are. Man, what God's asking is for all of us slaves to sin, to have a rebellion. Like, stop serving sin. Stop serving yourself. Rebel against us. God's calling for a slave revolt. Get the heck out of those things and serve the Lord. Say it emphatically. The Son of Man will also be ashamed of you. This is perfectly just. There's nothing unjust about this. If you're embarrassed by what he says, what his word says, who he is, if you're embarrassed by those things, well, he's kind of embarrassed that you're one of his children because he's not impressed. It doesn't mean that there isn't glory to be had. doesn't mean that there isn't a promise that God's made to us. But to reject conformity and reject the traditions of man, especially the ones that conflict with God, to reject the things this world tells us to be worked up about is actually a form of rebellion that I think is kind of fun. I don't have to follow sports. I don't. When you say must see TV, I say what's TV? You know, I don't have to see the podcast. I don't need to know the latest pop star that rejects God. Like, wow. I don't need to say things or do things that make other people happy. I can love people without the desire to make them happy necessarily. I want them to be happy, but that's God's business. They need to get happy in the only place that real happiness is found, which is to join me in the slave revolt. Stop caring what the world says. In what areas of does the Bible proclaim something that's true or false that our culture says is not true or false? In what ways is our culture calling good evil and evil good? Well, we should be vocal about those things in love and in grace. Where do we avoid proclaiming things when we know it's the clear and obvious truth of Jesus? We've started to call that political correctness. I don't know if that's an overused term or not. Well, reject that. Let's go with like... Jesus' correctness. I'd like to follow that. And often that says that we're going to do things the way Jesus said to do them. And there's tons of institutions on this planet that don't like that. So there's a glory here. That's the goal. And I think this is an important concept too. These get mixed in. We, we get caught on the words ashamed and adulterous and sinful because they're, they're striking. They're just like Satan when he talked to Peter. But listen to the other part. When he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels, Jesus promises that he's coming back, and it will be in glory, and he will come with his Father and with the holy angels. That's a sight to see that I don't want to miss. That's the goal of the Christian life. Do you believe Jesus is coming back? If you believe that, then we have every reason to celebrate Christmas and Easter and and. And each day that we live, because we want to be part of that. I want to be part of Jesus' coming in glory. This is obviously what Peter wanted. He wanted to be part of overthrowing all of those evil systems. So it's a good instinct to want that, but I want it God's way. Also note, 
Peter is willing to hear this harsh rebuke in the same way that I think we should be. And it's the same Peter that eventually leads Jesus's church into the next era. Don't miss that. When we're hearing these rebukes from Jesus, it's easy to just feel ashamed ourselves, to get down on ourselves, to beat ourselves up. But I think we should remember that it's this teaching that actually prepares Jesus to lead the church, not to be, you know, kicked out or reject Jesus like Judas. We don't see Judas in these conversations with Jesus. We see Peter in these conversations. So if Peter needs these kinds of rebukes, we, I think we should be encouraged if that's something God's convicting us of too. Don't miss that. God prepares us in really special ways. And sometimes those ways are to hear things like, don't be ashamed, follow Christ, take up your cross, give your life, and, and because it's the only way to save it is to just stop trying to save it. So this is the same Jesus that leads our lives that led Peter's life. It's the same Peter that's rebuked that leads the church into the next era. It's the same Peter. So none of this conversation is about Peter's salvation. His salvation has been assured by Christ. He's on his way. He'll be there at the glory. Don't miss that. All of this conversation is to people that have chosen to follow Jesus when he called them. He said to the disciples, follow me. These are the people in the boat with him hearing this conversation, are the people that chose to follow Jesus. It's not the scribes and Pharisees that hear this kind of talk. And in the same way, this maybe isn't the best evangelical chapter in the Bible, right? But it is something for us as believers to continue to disciple ourselves and train ourselves as that we want to put ourselves to death so that Christ can live in us and we can follow him. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your word, even when it's tough to hear. We thank you for the good news that you've given us. We thank you that we die to ourselves. Um, Lord, I appreciate that because I, myself isn't capable of saving me. And Lord, I don't have the words. I don't have the right way to do it. I don't have the path. And Lord, I can barely figure out my own relationships, much less work my way into heaven somehow or another. So Lord, I give it all to you. I put my life at your feet and I give up trying to save it. Lord, you can do what you want with it. It's yours. And Lord, I'm sorry that it's so little. I'm sorry it's just a small gift. But Lord, I've taken stock. I've taken account. And all I got are these seven loaves. And they're not going to do anything near what you want to be done with my life. But you can have them. And so Lord, take them and do whatever you want with them. And Lord, if you're going to pray and multiply and, and feed thousands of people, great. Lord, if you're just going to help me be a good husband and a good father and a good friend, great. Lord, help me to do what you've called me to do in my life and to do it with sincerity, to do it with honesty, and to do it with love. Lord, help me to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Help me to never come into your kingdom and in your church presuming that I need answers or I'm owed something by you. Lord, help me to come in with a deep humility and a deep grace so I can hear your word. Lord, help me to just sit quietly while you wipe the gunk off my eyes. Lord, while you help me to see, you help me to hear. Lord, help me to have eyes to see the needs of those around me. Help me to just serve people wholeheartedly, selflessly. Lord, help me to be a good steward, that I can be a good host and represent you in all regards until you come again. Lord, help me to not be ashamed of your word, your gospel, and your truth. Help me to speak it boldly, to do it with confidence and love, 
And Lord, to do it in such a way that I honor you, that when you return, you can say, well done, good and faithful servant. And Lord, I don't want you to be ashamed of me at all. And so in the abandoning of my concern for my reputation, I'm going to completely put my trust in you. The only reputation I need is a reputation with you. So Lord, help me to do that in such a way that I honor you, I glorify you, and that every encounter I have leaves thinking better of the name of Jesus than when I entered the conversation. Lord, bless this time, bless this Christmas day. Be with us as we fellowship and as we talk about your word. Lord, help us to learn and grow and just grow closer to you. I pray your anointing on each of the people in this room. Lord, that you bless us this week. You bless our lives. Give us a great peace and confidence and love and joy. Lord, all those words that are on Christmas cards everywhere. Lord, help us to just experience those things, not just talk about them. Lord, help me. May the, the joy of the Lord be our strength. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.